Long gone are the days when Canada welcomed U.S. war resistors who abandoned their post on humanitarian grounds. Joshua Key was deployed to Iraq in 2002, and because of atrocities he witnessed and was asked to take part in, he deserted the army in 2003. Key's experiences in Iraq are detailed in his book, A Deserter's Tale, written with Lawrence Hill. Josh made his way to Canada seeking asylum, and after 10 years of living in Canada with his family, he is still being denied refugee status or a work permit, and this year faces renewed pressure from immigration and the federal government towards deportation back to the U.S., meaning prison, a fate shared by several other war resistors living in Canada over the past few years. Hello and welcome to the Global Research News Hour Special Holiday Edition. On this week's episode, we hear excerpts from an event that took place March 29th at the University of Winnipeg, which featured several speakers instrumental in the decade-long struggle to allow war resistors to remain in Canada. We will hear from Michelle Robodeau, a founder of the War Resistor Support Campaign, about their efforts to help war resistors. We will also hear from Alyssa Manning, a lawyer who has been representing war resistors, including Joshua Key, in the Canadian courts on the legal issues they are facing. And we will hear from Iraq War Army resistor Joshua Key about his personal story and experiences that have led him to where he is today. On the Global Research News Hour for the week of April 3rd, 2015, the good soldier Joshua Key living in limbo. I'm guest host and producer Jonathan Wilson. The Global Research News Hour is a production of the Center for Research on Globalization and CKUW at the University of Winnipeg and is heard internationally and can be accessed at globalresearch.ca. Now we go straight to the panel discussion, starting with Michelle Robodeau of the War Resistor Support Campaign. This is a, a kind of a critical time for U.S. war resistors who are in Canada and who sought asylum here uh, in the course of the Iraq war. And uh, what I'm going to do is just give a very brief overview of the situation we're in right now and uh, the, from the political point of view. And Alyssa is going to talk about the, the legal situation uh, that confronts U.S. war resistors. So really to start with today is that 12 years ago, um, right across this country and right around the world, there were mass protests uh, opposing the impending, impending invasion and occupation of Iraq. And uh, as people know, uh, Canada did not participate in that invasion and occupation. It was really a mass movement across the country. I'm sure you had the very big protests here in Winnipeg, just as we did in Toronto, just as uh, Montreal, Vancouver, and other cities right across the country did. Um, but we weren't able to stop the war um, itself, and it was a war based on lies about uh, non-existent weapons of mass destruction. It was um, uh, a war based on the lie of uh, the U.S.'s uh, alleged concern about the, uh, the tyrant Saddam Hussein and that this was somehow a war to liberate the Iraqi people. And with every atrocity that we see by ISIS today, we see its source in that catastrophic war. And uh, so from the point of view of the anti-war movement, at the time, after the invasion of Iraq, Canada did not participate. Um, We knew that there would be a a lot of fallout inside the U.S. military as well because we had the experience of the Vietnam War, uh, a war that U.S. imperialism had tried for decades to, to basically overcome what was called the Vietnam Syndrome, the ability of the U.S. to put boots on the ground and uh, inflict that kind of carnage without mass opposition and mass protest. 
Nine months into the Iraq War, uh, the first U.S. war resistor came to Canada asking for asylum. That was Jeremy Hintzman, and that was January of 2004. And many more would follow as news of the atrocities at Abu Ghraib and the uh, siege of Fallujah, the use of white phosphorus, the um, senseless shooting of Iraqi civilians every day at checkpoints and so on. All of this came to light. And thousands of U.S. military personnel deserted uh, in, the, in the first years of the Iraq War. Um, and, and a number of them came to Canada. It's hard to tell how many people actually came up. Um, at, at one point, there was an estimate of about 200. Uh, a lot of that was anecdotal kind of um, reports from different uh, you know, um, shelters and uh, different lawyers across the country seeking guidance on how to, how to take on these cases. In May of 2004, we launched the War Resistor Support Campaign in Toronto with uh, support from a, a very broad uh, segment of the community, very much on, uh, on the basis of the mass opposition to the war in Iraq, which at one point, I think by 2007, it was 82% of Canadians opposed the Iraq war, which was, according to one pollster, uh, what they consider a statistical unanimity in, in terms of popular opinion. And also on the foundation of what happened during the Vietnam War when Canada uh, actually welcomed 50 to 80,000 U.S. war resistors. Some of them were draft resistors. The vast majority of them were draft resistors. But many were deserters, um, people in the same situation as, as Josh Key and, and other war resistors who came during the Iraq War. And with the founding of that campaign, um, very quickly we, we were able to uh, build a network across the country on uh, utilizing two tracks. One is the political demand for Canada to enact some kind of provision to let U.S. war resistors stay in Canada just as war resistors did stay during the Vietnam War. Um, the other aspect is the case-by-case the, the -case legal battle which, uh, as I mentioned, Alyssa will talk about. Um, and both of these tracks that we've operated on since 2004 have provided an opportunity to build a campaign and to sustain U.S. war resistors who did come to Canada seeking asylum um, in, in their fight. Uh, and sometimes they have reinforced each other. Political victories have helped in the legal uh, domain, and legal victories have propelled the political um, campaign. And, uh, and the initial demand that we had, that we wanted the Canadian government, which at the time of our founding was uh, a, a liberal government under Paul Martin, that we wanted the Canadian government to enact this provision, just as in 1969, the uh, then Minister of Immigration, Alan McKechn, had enacted a provision that uh, said that the Canadian government would no longer discriminate at the border between draft resistors and deserters that it didn't matter if you were an active duty military person or if you were someone who was being drafted, you would be allowed to apply for permanent resident status. Of course, the immigration system was very different at that time. Uh, you could ab apply at the border for permanent resident status, and if you had a high school education and $100 and you know a, f a number of these hoops to jump through, you could get permanent resident status, or it was landed status is what it was called. So we... Um, we won support for this notion of a provision uh, very quickly, and uh, the legal battle was complemented by the political fight to win this provision and to find a solution, a political solution for everyone, not just one person 
going before the Immigration Refugee Board, not one person at a time, but all U.S. soldiers who refuse to participate in an illegal war should be welcomed to Canada and have asylum here. And uh, it went along fairly well that the Conservatives uh, won the 2006 election, but it was a minority government, and we succeeded in passing two motions, one in 2008 and one in 2009, that basically said that soldiers who refuse to participate in wars that do not have UN sanction should be allowed to apply for permanent residence status in Canada, and that deportation proceedings against them should cease. That was, uh, for us, an immense uh, step forward because it, um, it, it reflected that sentiment that was very, very strong right across the country that this war was wrong. And it was a way for a Canada, a Canada and Canadians to contribute to weakening the war effort being led by uh, George Bush south of the border. Um, but, of course, the Conservatives ignored those motions. Um, I think it's important for us to remember that it, 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 it took a lot of work to get the opposition parties to work together and agree to pass those motions, and it was, uh, you would say, almost unanimous. There were just a handful, I think, of Liberals who didn't vote for it, but none voted against it. Um, but the Conservatives won a majority in 2011, and... Uh, Really, that's when you see in full flight the level of vendetta, of vindictiveness of this conservative government towards U.S. war resistors. Um, they, uh, I think a lot of people have asked, like, why are the conservatives so hell-bent on persecuting uh, U.S. soldiers who walked away from war crimes, from, uh, from violations of every international law that you can think of? And it's because, of course, the Conservatives supported the war. And if you remember back in, in the lead-up to the war, um, what's his name? Stephen Harper uh, uh, plagiarized a speech by the Australian Prime Minister, literally word for word, and made the same speech. You can Google it on YouTube or whatever. You look up uh, Harper, uh, Australian Prime Minister, Iraq War, and it's stunning. But they were really uh, ardent supporters of the, uh, the, the war. And uh, also, uh, the, the very fact that they wanted that intervention, they wanted to clear the ground as a government for any future intervention. The presence of U.S. soldiers in Canada who speak about what happened in Iraq day by day the raids in the homes, the, uh, the uh, senseless shootings, the absolute insanity of what has taken place on the ground, uh, it's a problem for the government. It's a big problem. And uh, if anyone's interested, uh, through our access to information type of uh, research that we've done, the level of involvement and of, of uh, uh, attention paid to the U issue of U.S. war resistance has been quite high. One of the... Um, one of the key things that came about under the Harper government is the introduction of Operational Bulletin 202. And I'll just say one thing about that. Um, and do give me the hook when I'm at 10. Is I'm at 10? Okay. Um, this is a, a, a regulation that the Minister of, then Minister of Immigration, Jason Kenney, introduced that says that all U.S. war resistor cases need to basically be centralized and sent to head office uh, because war resistors are potentially criminally inadmissible when they apply for things like humanitarian and compassionate consideration or spousal sponsorships or what have you. 
so that's just an indication of how much they really want war resistors to go. Um, now that Canadian troops are in Iraq, um, uh, the, the, the sort of relevance of this vendetta against war resistors is much more clear, and I think when Josh speaks about his experience, you'll see exactly what the problem is for Harper. Um, also, I think it's worth pointing out that war resistors are immensely more popular in Canada than Stephen Harper or his government. The uh, poll that Angus Reid did um, is, uh, showed that 64% of Canadians in every political party, um, no matter how they voted, uh, a majority in every um, category of age, region, supported Canada letting U.S. war resistors stay. Um, and so... What war resistors do is remind us of the, that it was right to protest that war, that it was right to demand that Canada stay out. And so we were right, Harper and Jason Kenney, and who's now Minister of Defense, oddly enough, um, are, were wrong. There was a report released this week, which I've got up on the screen here, um, uh, about the casualties in Iraq. One million dead. That is, that is definitive. And you can read this report. It is absolutely jaw-dropping. 5% of the Iraqi population has been wiped out. For what? And now we're in Iraq. And now there's a debate going to go happen tomorrow night in Parliament about whether Canada is going to um, uh, renew its um, uh, involvement there. Um, I'm, I'm out of time, so I'm just going to say a couple of things about what we need to do now. There's an election on the horizon. Uh, war resistors are under immense pressure. Since September, we have had one negative decision after the other every, almost every two weeks. Uh, some U.S. war resistors were able to get stays of removal. Others have had to leave the country. Uh, no one at this point of this uh, current group that has received uh, negative decisions has been jailed. Uh, but we know that that is what awaits people who are forced back to the U.S. Uh, Kimberly Rivera was forced back in 2012, and she was sentenced to 14 months. Uh, Robin Long got 15 months. Cliff Cornell got 12 months. And people who voluntarily returned, like Patrick Hart, got 24 months. Anybody who spoke out against the war in Iraq here in Canada is uh, selected for what is what we've been calling differential punishment. They're punished more harshly. Um, and the vast majority of uh, cases of AWOL are administratively um, discharged, and the minority who have spoken out are harshly punished. So there's work ahead. Um, we did uh, succeed in um, renewing the NDP's commitment to a provision, and they, they say if they form the next government, they will enact a provision. We are trying to get the same commitment from the Liberals. So that's one of the things in terms of uh, what, what is to be done, um, how we can actually leverage uh, opposition to um, the deportations uh, into a commitment from opposition MPs to enact a provision that would allow war resistors to stay. Thanks so much, Michelle Robodeau, from the War Resistors Support Campaign. Uh, now we're going to have uh, Alyssa Manning on Skype, if technology allows. Uh, she is a passionate immigration lawyer and has represented American war resistors in the Canadian courts. I'm a legal counsel for uh, individuals such as Joshua Key in his immigration matters in Canada. I also represent a number of other war resistors who are seeking legal status in Canada. I was asked to give you an overview of the legal issues and arguments that have been raised in these cases and, and how they've developed and where we are now with these arguments. Uh, as Michelle indicated, the, the first time this issue came up was in 2004 when Jeremy Hinsman came to Canada. And so since that was over a decade ago, there's a lot of ground to cover. 
there's also a lot of complexities in the arguments and, and the immigration processes in which these arguments arise. So hopefully my talk will not be too much like an immigration law class at law school. Uh, I will try to do my best to give you uh, a good outline this afternoon. Uh, the issue that's being actively debated and raised in these cases that I wanted to mention, uh, and this applies uh, more particularly to Josh Key's case, who you're going to hear from later, uh, and that's the, the right of a soldier to refuse to participate in specific military action. And so I don't mean a conscientious objector, somebody who's an absolute objector, somebody who's a pacifist who refuses to participate in conflict or the use of force in all circumstances. Uh, right now I'm talking about somebody who's known as a selective conscientious objector, somebody who refuses to participate in a specific military action because what's actually happening on the ground in that military action involves uh, breaches of the Geneva Conventions or other atrocities. Now, in Canadian law, the first time this issue of the right of a soldier to refuse to participate in a specific military action based on the fact that it includes uh, breaches of international standards for armed conflict, conflict, the first time that that was addressed was by the Federal Court of Appeal in a case called Zolfar Hani uh, from back in the 1990s. Uh, that case involved a soldier, or actually a, a medic from the Iraqi military, who did not want to participate in armed conflict against uh, Kurdish population because that conflict involved the use of chemical weapons. The Court of Appeal held that uh, punishing a soldier for refusing to participate in military conflict when that conflict involves war crimes, such as the use of chemical weapons, that would be persecution and that is enough to make a refugee claim. So this argument, this line of cases, was brought forward in uh, the war resistor cases, and the first time that it was addressed in relation to the war in Iraq uh, the, was in the Jeremy Hinsman case in 2006. And it was argued that uh, the actions of the U.S. military on the ground in Iraq involved breaches of Geneva Conventions, and therefore Jeremy Hinsman shouldn't have to participate in this conflict because he would be associated with those breaches. Now, at the time... There was li limited evidence available about what was actually happening on the ground in Iraq. We know a lot more now about what soldiers were being asked to do uh, on a daily basis uh, in, in that conflict. But the, the record of evidence in Hinsman's case in 2006 was actually sealed at the time he made his refugee claim back in 2005. And a lot of the reports that we have now from, from, the, uh, from the Red Cross, from Amnesty International, those weren't available. And so based on the evidence that was available at the time in, uh, in 2005, the court held in the Hinsman case that while there was evidence of isolated breaches, there wasn't uh, evidence that the U.S. military was systematically involved in war crimes or crimes against humanity. And that's why that argument put forward by Jeremy Hinsman and the resistors at that time was turned down. The next time... The courts in Canada dealt with this issue of what was actually happening on the ground in Iraq was in Joshua Key's case at the federal court in 2008. In that decision, the federal court reviewed uh, some changes in international law that had happened between 2006 and 2008, uh, and the court found that uh, you don't have to be involved directly in a war crime or a crime against humanity in order to be able to ground a claim for refugee protection on a refusal to participate in a specific military action. The court, specifically Mr. Justice Barnes, held that a much more permissive standard should be applied, 
and that widespread humiliation or abuse or degradation of combatants or non-combatants is also enough to ground a claim for refugee protection. And another important finding that the court made in Joshua Key's case was that it doesn't have to be direct participation in this misconduct in order to get refugee protection. You can refuse to associate with that conduct. It doesn't have to be direct participation. So that redefined the law on the right to participate in a specific military action in Canada. And the next time this issue was heard directly by the courts in Canada was in a 2013 case of Mr. Jules Tindungan. In that case, the Refugee Board had actually turned down Mr. Tindungan's case because they said that there's no evidence that the U.S. is doing anything wrong in Iraq. And in response to that finding, the court said very clearly that Mr. Tindungan had put forward voluminous documentary evidence from credible third-party sources such as Amnesty International that discussed routine and authorized military practices in Iraq and Afghanistan that are considered condemned by the international community as contrary to basic rules of human conduct. And so the court says that there's clear evidence that the U.S. was not complying with its international obligations on the ground in Iraq. Now that case, Mr. Tindungan has actually not gone back through for rehearing yet, even though that decision from the federal court came out in 2013 where we've been waiting over a year now for his hearing to be heard again. It'll be very interesting to see what the Refugee Board does with that clear finding of the federal court. So, I mean, we have law from the Federal Court of Appeal that says you have to consider a soldier's sincerely held beliefs against participating in military service when making a decision in their claim. We have a finding from the federal court that you don't have to directly participate in a war crime in order to get refugee protection. You can just refuse to associate with misconduct. And also we have a finding from the federal court that says that there's evidence that there was this misconduct happening on the ground in Iraq. So you might be wondering, why then hasn't Josh received a positive decision in his case? Why isn't he allowed to stay in Canada with his family, given that we have all of these positive developments in the courts? And that brings me to the third line of arguments that I wanted to talk to you about today. And that's the idea that Canadian immigration decision makers have that Josh, if he went back to the U.S., would be given a fair hearing. Now, in refugee law generally, not just in Canada, there's a legal principle called the presumption of state protection. The idea is that someone does not need the protection of a foreign state. They can get protection in their own country. And it's that principle that has been the thorn in the war resister's side, because it's based on that principle that most of their applications continue to be turned down. The general rationale behind many of the decisions coming out in war resister cases is that people such as Jeremy Hinsman or Joshua Key should take their fight about the right to conscientious objection and their refusal to participate in what was happening on the ground in Iraq. They should take that fight to the courts in the U.S. and have those issues addressed there. However, there are multiple reasons why they can't do that and why they can't do that and get a fair hearing. And it's those reasons that are still being debated in the courts in Canada. And I'm going to go through three of them. I'll try to do so quickly. 
So the first, uh, the first reason why somebody like Joshua Peake would not get a fair hearing if he went back to the United States was addressed uh, briefly by Michelle in her presentation, and this is the idea of differential punishment. Um, there is no question under the law that you can't punish somebody more severely for their political beliefs. Uh, just like uh, you wouldn't be able to punish only those uh, soldiers who desert who are of a particular race or religion, uh, it's not proper under the law to punish only those soldiers who have certain political beliefs. Statistics coming out of the U.S. demonstrate that 94% of all AWOL soldiers or deserters are not formally prosecuted and sent through a court-martial and sent to prison. Rather, they're just kicked out of the military after non-judicial punishment. Um, but those 6% that are formally prosecuted and sent to prison include people such as Kimberly Rivera or Robin Long or Patrick Hart who were on record in Canada as being politically opposed to uh, the U.S. Foreign Act. We've had a number of federal court decisions that acknowledge that it's not okay to punish somebody differentially because of their political beliefs. Uh, and this, that argument also finds a lot of support in international sources like the, the UN Handbook for the Determination of Refugee Claims. Uh, so the law on that point is very clear, but where the argument is still being fought is on the evidence. The government still keeps insisting in their, all of these court proceedings that we haven't substantiated this question of differential punishment with uh, with enough evidence to prove that somebody such as Joshua Key would actually face differential punishment. Uh, however, I do think we now have clearly the evidence to substantiate this point, especially now that we have documents such as, for example, the court-martial transcript from uh, Kimberly Rivera's court-martial, which the wherein the military prosecutors actually said to the sentencing judge, we want you to give her a very uh, a very lengthy sentence because we want to send a message to people in Canada uh, who are attending rallies and speaking out about their beliefs up there. So we're still fighting that issue in the courts, and that issue is going to be uh, uh, coming up in the, over the next year in all of these appeals that we currently have from the decisions that came out this past fall. The next uh, reason why somebody like Joshua Key would not be able to get a fair hearing if he was uh, sent back to uh, the U.S. is because the U.S. court martial system is not an independent and impartial tribunal. Uh, the, a little bit of history for you. Uh, the Canadian court martial system was altered in the early 1990s to comply with both international and Canadian standards for an independent and impartial tribunal. Prior to that change, uh, Canada had a system that's very much like the system that the U.S. has right now. Uh, interestingly enough, the British system and also the Australian system were changed around the same time that the uh, Canadian system was changed in the 1990s. Uh, but in the U.S., uh, the court-martial convening authority, or the command, has control over the almost the entire court-martial process. They determine who's charged, what they're charged with, and they even pick the jury that's going to be deciding the case, and then the command actually does performance reviews of those jury members to determine whether or not they, uh, they performed their, their job appropriately. In Canada, that system was changed in the 1990s uh, through a case called Jean Arrow, where basically the command was separated from the, all of these decisions that are made around prosecution, and a separate department of military prosecutions was set up. 
And so the Canadian court martial system now complies with international standards around being an independent and impartial tribunal. And the executive or the command can't influence somebody's court martial hearing the way that they can in the States. So we have gathered some expert evidence uh, from uh, U.S. military law experts talking about how uh, the command still has substantial influence over the court martial process in the States, which would result in uh, an unfair hearing for somebody like Joshua P. or Jeremy Hinsman if they were sent back. Uh, in the decision of uh, the federal court in the Tindangan case from February 2013, which I mentioned previously, uh, the federal court saw all of this evidence for the first time, and the federal court said uh, that clearly, based on the evidence uh, that was before it, that the U.S. martial system is, I believe the words were, outdated and at odds with Canadian and international norms. So this issue and this evidence, again, it's going to be uh, addressed in, um, in the cases that are coming up over the next year in, in relation to the negative decisions that we received in 2014. And the final reason that I'll mention why somebody like uh, Joshua Key would not be able to get a fair hearing in the U.S. concerns uh, what defenses he would have available to him at a court-martial hearing if he was actually sent back. Basically, there's a gap between international law and U.S. military law. Under international law, a soldier can refuse to associate with a military action if it would involve breaches of Geneva Conventions or the humiliation or abuse of combatants or non-combatants. But under U.S. military law, a soldier can only refuse a direct order if it is a direct order to commit a positive act that is a war crime. So, for example, the order, go kill that child or go rape that civilian, a soldier in the U.S. would be able to refuse that direct order. But a soldier cannot refuse the order to stand by and watch his uh, or her unit members arbitrarily arrest or abuse innocent civilians. So there's a gap between what can justify a claim for refugee protection and what a soldier can legally put forward as a defense under U.S. military law. So we've obtained expert evidence about this gap uh, and this reason why this issue of what was actually occurring on the ground in Iraq can't be fought uh, in the courts in the U.S. by people like uh, Joshua Key or Jeremy Hinsman. Uh, and uh, this evidence and this issue is going to be addressed in more detail again in the next year uh, as the decisions that came out this fall are addressed by the, the federal court. So I guess in conclusion, we have a, a couple of important legal issues in Canada that are still unsettled, uh, and I expect there's going to be a lot of movement on those in the next year or so. Uh, but before I leave you today, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the current political landscape uh, and in which these decisions are being made and how the, the political fight that Michelle was talking to about impacts uh, what happens in the legal fight. Um, basically, we have a number of new decision makers, both at the Immigration and Refugee Board and also on the, uh, the federal court bench. And these new decision makers are being presented with these issues for the first time. And we're asking them to take the law in, this, in, a new, in a new area, basically, uh, following the, the trend in international decision-making. And so it's really important that we uh, provide the political atmosphere uh, or political support wherein they can comfortably make those decisions. And I'm not saying necessarily that federal court judges are influenced by political questions, but just that it's much easier for those decisions to be made in the way that we want when there is enough support 
for these arguments and for the war resistance in civil society and in the media and in the public generally. So basically, the legal fight needs the political fight as well in order to be successful. And that, just to echo what Michelle was saying about how you can help somebody like Josh stay in Canada with his family, is through supporting the efforts of the War Resisters Support Campaign in educating the public about their stories and the issues that arise in them. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Alyssa Manning. You are listening to a panel discussion on war resistors that took place at the University of Winnipeg on the Global Research News Hour. Next up, U.S. Army resistor Joshua Key. I was uh, 24 years old. I was living in Guthrie, Oklahoma. I was a certified welder, and I was making $7.25 an hour. At um, My ex-wife was pregnant with our third child, and I knew there was no way we was going to be able to continue at the uh, pay that I was receiving, no health care, and what else was there. I... Um, in high school, I took a program called ROTC, which was uh, sort of getting you ready for a, the, a career in the military. So I thought, I did what the billboard said and what the commercials. Go in, I went and talked to a recruiter. I went in, and the recruiter said, you have to take a test to see where you place that within the military. So I took a test, and they said, you have three choices of jobs. You can be an MLRS driver, which is a multiple launch rocket systems driver. You can be an infantryman or a bridge builder. I said, I want to be a bridge builder. That made sense to me. That way when I got done, I would have a career. I could continue working. I saw I signed the dotted line in uh, pretty well was April of 2002. In my contract, it said that I didn't get promised. I didn't get college for money. The only thing that they said was, is uh, first, you have a large family. Don't worry, you'll never go to war. You won't go unless World War III breaks out because you're a family man. They showed pictures on the wall of this is what military life is like on post. This is what we do for your family. They, um, and they said, uh, you can pick any duty station in the United States. You pick whichever one you want, but we won't even let you go to Hawaii or Alaska. It has to be in the continental United States. And I said, what's a non-deployable base? And they said, well... They looked at a map and they showed me the bases that were at that time considered non-deployable and it was Fort Carson, Colorado. Not far from home, easy drive. I said, I want Fort Carson, Colorado. When um, I went to basic training, when I got off, it was sort of like in the movies. You know, it's a whole bunch of little kids, 18, 17 years old, crying. I started laughing because I, I knew these guys, you know, you're not going to beat me to death. You know, the only thing you're going to do is scream at us. And uh, they told us to put our heads in the bags, and I'm looking around, and these little kids are just crying, saying they want their mommy, and I thought, oh, hell, here we go. This is going to be fun. When I got off the bus, actually, it was cattle trailers. That's what they hauled you around on, it was cattle trailers. When we got off, they said, okay, Private Key, your job has changed. You had high math scores in your ASVAB test, so you'll be trained in explosives and landmines. And I thought, okay, that's a lot different than building bridges, but... I still had, I'm going to a non-deployable base. I'm not going to be deployed unless World War III breaks out. So what the hell. 
So it was uh, basic training was uh, you know, literally like the movies. I mean, you know, they took us around. You stab dummies and you scream every name in the book for different people. If you're not an American, you're nothing. It's quite simple. Uh, every derogatory term for every other race is very much relevant. We, um, when I uh, graduated basic training, they, uh, I was one of the, I had the highest scores in my class, and I thought, okay. Fort Carson, Colorado, here I come. I'll get there, non-deployable duty station, it'll be fine. I figured that at the time, I would do the best that I could because I noticed if you do the best you can, they'll leave you alone. So I I hit the books on how to do explosives and landmines and they left me alone. When I arrived at Fort Carson, Colorado, you're in a welcome center. In that welcome center, your sergeant comes to pick you up. When my sergeant came to pick me up, the first thing he said was, Soldier, you ready to go to war? Because we've been in every war since war began. And I was like, what? What are you talking about? I thought I was at a non-deployable base. And he said, well, you have to talk to one of our, your superior. So we got to our company, and I asked to talk to my lieutenant. I wanted to talk to someone who could answer my questions. I went in, sat down, and I said, why has everything in my contract been false? There's been nothing that's been, that you said was going to happen has happened. He said, soldier, you don't know the military way of life yet, and get the hell out of my office. For weeks after that, I was what the military considers hazed, which is muscle failure. So you do push-ups till you can't move, you do set-ups till you can't move, you throw up, and you do more, and you do more. After that, I learned I'm not going to say nothing, because if that's going to be the outcome of it, then you can't ask a question, you can't do anything. Keep your mouth shut, and what we consider in the military, drive on and drink water. It's always drink water, drive on. It's, water's the cure for everything. Um, it was uh, in pretty well November of 2002. We were going into the mountains of Colorado. We were playing war games. We were playing these war games on the basis of we're going to go to Iraq. It's going to be big tank battles. We're just going to go defuse landmine fields. We'll be out of the way of the cities, and this is the way the war was going to be dealt with. Now, April of two, or March of 2003, when the war started, they took our equipment. They said we're heading north down through Turkey, so our equipment's on its way. Then we got a call that said, wait a minute, they're not going to let us go through the north, so they had to reroute all the equipment back to the Persian Gulf and go in through Kuwait. So we arrived in Kuwait. When we arrived on uh, April 10th of 2003, we get to our camp. They don't have enough water, they don't have enough food. It was completely a shamble of what the most powerful military in the world could do. So they were telling us to go around and steal water from other companies and units so that way we had enough water, steal MREs so that we have enough food. So that's what we did. We went around at night, we took everybody else's water, we were going into Iraq. On April 27th of 2003, I went to Baghdad. When I arrived in Baghdad, they told us that uh, there was 120 people in my company. They said, you're going to the city of Ramadi. It's a city of 300,000 Iraqis, and you guys will control that city. Well, we all started freaking out. Like, first of all, how in the hell is 120 people going to control 300,000 people? Then. They said, well, the big reason is, is the bridge that goes into the city cannot withstand an Abrams tank. So you have to go in by foot. We got outside the city. The bridge was built by the British, and you could drive 10 American tanks across that bridge. We went in. It was just like on TV. 
they were coming out waving. They were, so we were throwing them candy like it was a damn parade. We went through, we went straight to Saddam Hussein's palace. We pulled up and we made that our, that was our station. So we pulled in, we kicked in the doors, everything was already gone, we put up shop. Then they said, oh, your job has changed again. You guys will raid homes, you'll do traffic control points, and you will control the streets. They took a little piece of stick and they drawled in the sand of how you're going to raid a home. That night we raided a home. We went at pretty well two o'clock in the morning. We kicked in the front door and we raided. Well then it changed. That wasn't efficient enough. My time in Iraq I did over 200. Was what we would do is we'd go to the front door, we'd put a C4 charge on the front door. We'd blow the front door in, we would take every male over five feet tall to be sent outside sent off for interrogations. We'd take women and children outside held at gunpoint and we'd go through the house and take whatever we wanted. We would take money, we would take their TVs, we could do whatever the hell we wanted. There was no one telling us what we could do, there was no one telling us anything. We were the executioners, the occupiers, and we had no one to look over our actions. Uh, shortly after being in Ramadi, for about two weeks, I went to the city of Fallujah. When I went to Fallujah, it was a different ballgame. The city was um, in up in arms because they wanted the factories reopened and the schools reopened. I was guarding a mayor's cell, which is like a city hall. We were on the back corner. All of a sudden, it comes across the radios, screaming, the ground starts shaking, and bullets are flying. A few seconds later, it comes across the radio that we have 12 innocent civilians dead. And that was the day the Iraq war began, completely across the whole entire country. That's when it started. Also, that night, it was our first time to do a traffic control point. We had never did one before. We did what the book said. We put tanks in the S configuration. We would have individual cars come up. We had no interpreters. We, had, we, we didn't have anything. The only thing we knew how to stop them was wave our hand and tell them to stop the vehicles. The first one comes, and it comes. It went past the point, and all of a sudden the ground starts shaking, and the tanks are firing, bullets are ripping. Uh, it stops. We go back to the car, and we tried to pull people out. There was a man and a child. The man was dead. He was in pieces, and the child was barely alive. So we took the child, and we put him inside of our armored personnel carrier and took him to the closest hospital and dropped him off. When we got back to our compound, we, most of us were throwing up. We were beside throwing up, and our sergeant was ripping and roaring about, you're going to be in the military forever because where the hell are you going to get to do this again? And we're all thinking, I'm thinking, what the hell are you talking about? I don't want to do this again. But he said, you know, you will have to stay in the military for the rest of your life because this is the only place you'll ever be able to do this. After that, we went back to the city of Ramadi. When we went back, the city was in arms. I mean, it was every night mortars coming in. You have to change your location every 10 minutes because the bomb's going to land right on top of your head if you don't. Every time you go out of the walls, you're getting attacked with people you can't see. You can't see nothing. The only thing that's happening is the bullets are coming. Bad part was, is if there was any civilian standing around you when that would happen, they die, and they die fast. Every time, two or three, it takes five seconds, when we would get attacked, every innocent civilian in that area would die. And then we would put them in body bags and go put them in a big pile and wait until someone come to get them. There was two incidences in my time, the second time in Ramadi, that really made me question about what I was doing in Iraq. 
First of all, the, all the raids that we were doing, they were with military intelligence. There was, the military intelligence was telling us that there was caches of weapons or potential terrorists inside of the homes. Never. We never went inside and found a cache of weapons, nor did we ever go in and find a potential terrorist. And I'll get to another story in a minute about that. But I was on uh, guarding a children's hospital. It was the Ramadi Children's Hospital. It was on the banks of the Euphrates River. It was a beautiful hospital. We were on all four corners of the, the bottom and all four corners of the top. Adjacent to one of the, the corners, there was a little shack, and a little bitty girl would come running across every time I was on guard duty and would say, Mr. Food and Mr. Water. So <clears throat> I would always give her my MREs and I would always give her my water. Most of us would, for, for the most part. Sometimes they would come across our radio to quit fraternizing with the enemy, and we would, I would laugh it off, my God, this is a little kid who needs food and water. One day she comes running across the street just like normal. This is after weeks. She comes running. And then right when she hit the middle of the road, her head exploded like a mushroom, and she fell to the ground. When, when it happened, I went to shock. Um, we, uh, her parents come running out and grab the girl. It was, uh, yeah. But when we got back to our shack at the, at the palace, I was always under the impression, it was actually military law, that I had the right to file a mission statement. And in that mission statement, I could say exactly what happened there for a complete, this is what happened. So that way it was documented. I went into my commander's tent, and I said, I want to file a mission statement. And he said, soldier, it is none of your concern and none of your business. Get the hell out of my tent. And then that's when it started. To me, bell started ringing. The hell if it's not my concern or my, I'm the one standing there. I'm the one dealing with it. The same time frame, we was on a QRF mission. We was on a quick reaction force. You're sort of the SWAT team for the military. If anything happens in the city of Ramadi in a 24-hour time frame, they send you there as fast as you can to calm it down or to deal with whatever the problem is. We get the call late at night. We're on the banks of the Euphrates River. We're an armor personnel carrier. We took a sharp right-hand turn. When we took that sharp right-hand turn, there was two Iraqis that were decapitated from gunfire on the ground. Whenever we parked, my sergeant said, get out and pull perimeter. I got out the back to pull perimeter. There was other American soldiers on the ground at this location. When I got out the back, they were playing soccer with the heads. And I just turned right back around, got inside of my armed personnel carrier and said, nope, I'm not going to have any involvement with this. My sergeant screamed at me, you're breaking a direct command. I said, yep, damn sure am, and I sat down. Whenever we got back to our palace again, I said, I want to file a mission statement. I want to put what I've seen there and have it documented. And again, I was told it was none of my concern, none of my business, and get the hell out of his tent. That's when the wheels in my mind were turning like crazy, because everything you people have told me has been a lie. There's no weapons of mass destruction. If there was, you would have used them on us. Second of all, everything you're telling us is false. There's no caches of weapons. There's no potential terrorists. The only terrorist at that time that I was coming to the point of was us. We were the terrorists. We were the occupiers. And we were the ones doing everything there. There was no one doing anything back to us. And I said, and I got in trouble for saying it, but we were um, in a meeting. And I put it as, if someone was doing this to us, we would be doing tenfold the damage that these people are doing to us. And then that's when I got in trouble. But it was the truth. 
If, they, if you come to the United States and we were doing the same shit and people were doing this to us, we would be killing every possible person we could see. And that's the way we would do it and everyone knew it. I had only went to a green zone one time my time in Iraq. Went for two weeks. We arrived in the green zone and it was like a night and day difference. You walk out, there's military personnel in nice clean uniforms, all nice and pressed. They're the ones you've seen on TV that were the ones saying they were happy to be in Iraq. They never came to where I was and asked us if we were happy to be there because they probably would have got punched in the face when they did. But that's the ones that were happy to be there. Well, we, we, uh, we go, we go to eat. It was our first time to actually go and eat real food for my time in Iraq. The rest of the time you're eating on tin cans and you're eating MREs. Well, we walk, we go to the mess hall. An, an officer stops me at the door and says, you can't come in here and eat, you have a bloody uniform. I just put my hands in the hair. I thought, holy shit, are you kidding me? Because I'm the one fighting the war. You're not going to allow me to come inside and eat. He refused. I walked away. The next morning, we went back. <clears throat> we went back. We're sitting at a table, and I was with one of the guys in my squad. We're sitting there eating. Here again comes an officer. He sits down. He goes, what unit are you guys with? And we said, we're with the 43rd Combat Engineer Company, 2nd Squadron, 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment. He goes, you're the baby killers. And I pretty well threw my tray up in the air, made a big mess, and I pretty well said, F everyone, and I turned around and walked out. I said, you're not going to label me that. I am not associated with this at all. At that time, they said, Private Key, you get to go home for two weeks. And I said, okay, I'm shutting my mouth. I'm not going to say a single word because I get to go home. Before that, they sent me to Al-Kahim on the Syrian border. I sort of played a border guard. Everything was fine. A lot of times we'd get caught in the crossfire, and we would, uh, it seemed like 11 o'clock every day, the mortars would hit, every single day at the same time. Mortars would come flying in on us, and the most people that were getting injured were the truck drivers that were trying to bring goods back and forth to Iraq and Syria. They would get out of their trucks in pieces, like one I remember vividly, he got out and his guts were hanging down to the ground. I ran over and tried to stuff him back inside of him and wrap him up as fast as I could so he could get to a hospital and get help. Don't know if he ever made it, but... At that border I was standing and a girl come. She come walking up, she had a passport. Actually, she didn't have a passport. And she says, I want to go home, speak perfect English. She says, I want to go home. And I said, okay, well, what's the deal? She said, well, I came to Syria when the war started. Now I want to come back to Iraq. This is my home. I said, okay, let's take, you to the, uh, let's take you to the customs office, and I'm sure we can get this worked out. I walk inside the Iraqi customs office, and right off they said, she's a prostitute. We'll take her and we'll do what we want to with her. And I said, no, you're not. I said, I'm not letting you have her. And I walked out of there, and I shut the door, and I went to my office. And I said, look, this is what they did. And they didn't say anything, but they showed gestures of what they were going to do to that girl, and I refused to hand her over to them. Well, then I was ordered to. They said, you have to hand over that girl to the Iraqi officials. Do it now. They followed me over there. I had to hand her over. Later that night, I seen that girl getting carried off to God knows what, never seen again. When I left to come home on uh, November 13th of 2003, when I landed in the United States at Atlanta, they took the plane and they had these big, fire, big water cannons that when you're going, the water cannons are flying or going water over the plane because that's your reception back of like honoring you. 
I was the only person on that plane that I didn't change my DCUs, my uniform. I left the same uniform on that I had on the whole damn time. And we didn't have washing facilities. We didn't have showers. You wouldn't swim in the Euphrates River for a shower. And they said, like I, like I told them, I'm not, this is the reality. This is my reality. All the rest of them, their reality was in the green zone of nice and let's love Iraq and let's, we're glad we're here. They're, we're so happy to be in Iraq. We got off the plane. And for as far as I could see, there was veterans on both sides that when you were going, they're wanting to shake your hand and say, thank you. I put my head down and I pretty well ran through that. I said, damn it, don't thank me for what the hell I'm doing there. And I got to the end. I arrived in Fort Carson, Colorado. When I arrived in Fort Carson, Colorado, one of the first things I did, I called a military lawyer, called a JAG officer, and I said, I do not want to go back to Iraq. I'll do anything to stay in the military, but I do. Don't, I'm not going back there. And he said, soldier, you have two choices. Either you get back on that plane and go back to Iraq, or you're going to prison. That time was my own choice. I took my ex-wife, my three children, and I ran. I went to a city where I knew there would be lots of violence because I knew that if a person's dying all the time, why the hell would they look for a deserter? So I went to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, which actually fitted the bill pretty good. Um, Lived in the shadows pretty well. Um, I was there for pretty well 14 to 17 months. We, uh, at that time I worked like I was a certified welder, so I worked at an elevator shop. The guys I worked for were veterans, which were good because they could understand my mentality of when I would tell you to go F off or whichever. It uh, got to, uh, it was getting to a, a, situ a point to where I knew this couldn't continue. Uh, my my ex-wife was pregnant with our fourth kid. I knew that when tax time come, red flags were going to start flagging. So I filed my taxes, and at that time, I started getting a hold. I was looking on the Internet. I was punching everything in. I was looking for help. Deserter needs help. AWOL needs help. And I came across a, a story of two individuals in Toronto, Jeremy Hensman and Brandon Euling, the War Resisters Support Campaign, and the, my first lawyer, Jeffrey House. I contacted the War Resister Support Campaign, which I talked to Michelle. I uh, asked if there's anything, and everyone was very honest. You can come, we don't know the outcome, but you can come and we're all gonna try. I gave false dates of when I was coming across because I didn't know who the hell, if anyone was listening. I was very, very paranoid. My plan was, is okay, I'll get to Niagara Falls there, and if anything happens, I'll just jump in the river and swim across. Well, as we're getting to the border, I'm looking, and there's snow, and there's ice everywhere, and I look down inside that water, and I see big ice chunks floating. I thought, holy shit, that may not be the best ideal, but there was no turning back at the time. We went, and uh, it was very easy. They asked where we were going. I said, Toronto, going to visit. They just let us through. They asked, why did you have so much luggage? And I said, I got four kids in the back, and there you go. Have a good time in Canada. When uh, we went to Toronto, I... Uh, Met with Michelle, actually, she's the first person I met in Canada, and then uh, and her partner, Christine. And then I met uh, pretty well my godmother and uh, godfather, Winnie and Eugene. And it was a, a different life started. I had to apply for refugee status, and that's when this ball game started, sort of what Alyssa was talking about. Um, applied for refugee status, and then I... Um, it was the first few days I was here, I asked my lawyer, because it was a French... Um, news organization that said do you want to do an interview and I thought 
I don't know. So I contacted my lawyer, and he said, well, you can look at it one way. You can look at it as insurance, because if you're on TV or anything, then they'll, they're never going to come try to get you, because then someone would notice you're gone. So then I said, okay. I started, in a sense, being as outspoken as I possibly could. I did everything I could. I still do. And in a sense, it has been a form of insurance. Um, <clears throat> I went. To, I lived in British Columbia for about a year on Gabriela Island. There, um, I had my first immigration refugee board hearing in '06. Uh, it was uh, pretty well what I expected. I mean, for the most part. In 2007, I had went to Toronto. I had did an interview for CBC The Current. Well, I get a phone call. Uh, it was a literary agent, and she said, do you want to write a book? And I thought, and by that time, there was a lot offered. I just sort of laughed at it and said, yep, sure will. I'll write a book. And she said, well, there'll be a, 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 an author contacting you shortly. And then a few days later, I get a call from Lawrence Hill. And he's like, I want to write your book. I heard you on the radio, and I want to do it. And I thought, okay, we did it. It was a matter of, uh, I think, six months of me, me meeting Larry, Larry coming to where I was. I moved to northern Saskatchewan. He come there. We wrote The Deserter's Tale. <clears throat> At the time of writing it, I didn't really... I understood that that was probably the biggest no-no that you could do, is write a book about your experiences in Iraq, being in another country. Uh, and as far as I know, under the circumstances, I'm probably the only person that ever has did it in history, of being wanted, living in another country... <clears throat> not having status in the country and writing a book. Now, the book was published in 15 different countries, 13 different languages, and it did what I wanted. The only thing I wanted from the book was to be able to explain why I'm in Canada. Because I can never come in, I can never say enough for the real reasons why I'm here in a full detail for why I came to this country. But I knew that book could, and it has. It has did that. <clears throat> but I didn't realize the big X that it would put over my head either. 2008, my uh, ex-wife and my four children went back to the United States, um, pretty well under mutual agreements. When I first came to this country, I thought it would take two years. You know, I really thought when I could, it'll only take two years. This will be done. This will be dealt with, and we'll go on about life. Well, it was year three, and there was nothing, nothing changing. And actually, you know, things were getting steadily worse with the conservatives, with their even their minority at the time. So that happened. They went back. Divorced. I met my wife in Winnipeg, which is Alexina over here. We um, now we have four more children. One's only eight days old, though he really doesn't count. But wherever he's at here, <clears throat> but it um, it's it been definitely a road since I've been in the country as far as the political side of things and trying to be allowed to stay here. It's you know you win one you get knocked back five another guy wins one that we all help each other in that aspect and then you get knocked back again. But at least in a sense I've at least maintained at least what sanity I have left. Uh, at least it stays pretty good. That's it. That's me. Thank you all for coming. You were listening to the Global Research News Hour, heard every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and partnering radio stations across the country. The program can be downloaded at globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback, email globalresearch at gmail.com. I'm guest host and producer Jonathan Wilson. Bye for now. <laughs>